One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. After months of tweets, weeks of anticipation, a prequel, and far too much overhyping on my part, it's finally here. The first ever episode. If you're wondering what the deal is, have a listen to the prequel. But as those of you who've been following the chatter online will know, I've always said that this podcast would be interactive, and that you would have the chance to request certain topics. This first episode is therefore in response to a request by Rob Griffith, who wanted uh, a talk on the naming of the conflict. So, here we go. What's with the name? Rebranding the Napoleonic Wars. In December 1840, almost two decades after his death, Napoleon Bonaparte was laid to rest at the Hôtel d'Invalide in Paris. Hundreds of thousands of people turned out to watch his funeral procession, a testament to the fascination that he continued to command from beyond the grave. It's a fascination that is as potent 200 years after his death as it was 20 years after. Thousands of books have been written about the man and the times through which he lived. So central was Napoleon to the course of events during the latter part of his life that history has labelled the period quite simply the Napoleonic Wars. On the surface, it's quite a logical name. Napoleon, his actions, and particularly his foreign policy, dominated the period, so why not name the conflict after him? This is a line of reasoning that was taken one step further by Charles Esdell in his book Napoleon's Wars, in which he argues that the concept of these conflicts being Napoleon's Wars works quite neatly, as on many levels these were wars started, or at least engineered by, Napoleon. Now I know that suggestion is going to make the pro-Bonaparte listeners very angry, and I've probably just lost all of the Bonapartists from my pool of seven people who actually listen to this. I'm not going to go into depth on Napoleon's reputation today, as I'm planning to do a more detailed episode on him in the future. Having said that though, with the greatest of respect to the most ardent fans of Napoleon, for those who are keen on the Napoleon was a man of peace line of thinking, I'm afraid the evidence just doesn't back that up. 1815 is often cited to support that, with the fact that the final coalition declared war on Napoleon personally, rather than on France as a nation, being the key to that kind of interpretation. 
But it's important to remember why. Napoleon had been exiled. He'd been granted dominion over Elba and had proven that he couldn't be trusted by violating the terms of his exile and returning to France to take over in what was basically a military coup. So the situation in 1815 was engineered by Napoleon. One other obvious issue with the Man of Peace line is the 1815 invasion of Russia. Another is the invasion of Portugal at the start of the Peninsula War and equally stabbing his ally in the back through his attempts to seize the Spanish throne in 1808. So whichever way you look at it, Napoleon wasn't shy about going to war. The other thing to bear in mind is that those situations where other nations moved first were at least partly the result of Napoleon extracting excessive terms in the peace treaties that he dictated. The idea that other nations were going to accept the extreme terms that Napoleon demanded as the basis of a lasting peace would require you to assume that other nations were going to just lie down and accept a new world order where they were relegated to comparative insignificance and in an age of balance of power, that was never going to happen. So in a sense, these were wars of Napoleon's making due, if we're being generous, to his unwillingness to compromise. But Napoleon's wars, although a good starting point, doesn't cover the whole of our period. No matter how much you love or loathe Napoleon, you can't get away from the fact that until 1796, he was largely, although not completely, irrelevant. Yes, we do have a solution for that, the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. But it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, and generally people just shorten it to the Napoleonic Wars, which leads to that temptation to overplay the role of Napoleon in the early stages of the conflict. The other issue with that name is that it's very Franco and perhaps Anglo-centric. For Britain and France, the struggle was about defeating firstly the French Republic, and then later Napoleon's empire. Other nations take a different view of the wars, though, and this is where Rob's query about the naming of the conflict really comes into play. I put the topic out there on Twitter, and people came back with some really interesting responses. I think a couple of people probably missed the point when I asked how people refer to the Napoleonic Wars in France. Somebody came back with, well, la guerre napoleonique, duh. That was meant to be a French accent, I do apologise. My incompetence with the French language aside, that suggestion slightly misses the point of what I'm getting at. Wars are remembered differently in different nations. To take the Second World War as an example, in Russia it's actually known as the Great Patriotic War of 1941-45, reflecting that different perspective for the Russians as a war which they primarily fought in the defence of their own country. Naming wars is not a simple thing. Naming battles isn't actually that simple. Take the Battle of Waterloo, for example. Blücher, commander of the Prussian forces, wants to name it rather poetically the Battle of La Belle Alliance, which is a rather apt metaphor and worked well with the fact that uh, Napoleon's command post for much of the battle was near an inn of the same name. So where does this take us? Well, the actual French name is an interesting one to start with. Les Guerres de la Révolution et de l'Empire. Straight away it hits at an important theme by emphasising the divide between the two chapters of the period. Chapter 1 being about the defence and then the exporting of the revolution, although later it descended into a desire to conquer for conquest's sake, and the second being the succession of conflicts to maintain the French Empire. That also really enforces the sense of perspective and forces us to remember that Empire was at the heart of this war, not just for the British, but also for the French. Despite the British Empire extending across the world's oceans, and the French 
empire across the heart of Europe, neither one could really coexist with the other. In that sense, perhaps the Napoleonic Wars are an early 19th century equivalent of the Cold War breaking out into a hot war. If we're to take our search further afield, though, we get other interesting suggestions. In German, the common term is the quite predictable Die Napoleonischen Kriege, although I'm told that sometimes the conflict is actually referred to as the Anti-Napoleonic Wars. Yet there's also a romanticised, less well-known name, the Befreiungskriege, the Liberation Wars, which again highlights the importance of perspective, given that much of what is modern-day Germany was overrun and occupied by French forces, and so the notion of it being a war of liberation is actually unsurprising. We see a similar concept at work in Spain. The conflict as a whole is known as Guerras Napoleonitas, and as you can hear, my Spanish is even worse than my German and French. But the conflict enters into a different phase with the French attempt to occupy Spain, and that specific conflict is known as the Guerra de la Independencia. When it comes to Russia, meanwhile, I've been sent a phrase in Cyrillic alphabet, which I'm not even going to bother trying to embarrass myself by attempting to pronounce, but which translates as the Patriotic War of 1812, or the Fatherland War, as opposed to the Great, Patri Great Patriotic War of 1941-45. Patriotism and the defence of the nation, then, seems to be a common theme for many of the nations that fought against Napoleonic France. Yet if we're going to find a universal term that works for everyone and which captures more of the flavour of the conflict's unique nature, neither Napoleonic Wars or Wars of Liberation and Defence of the Nation quite cut it. Rebranding the war has the potential to say much more about its significance in our history. And rebranding, although a bit corporate, is the right term here, because we're talking here about trying to get people to revisit the conflict and think again about what it represented, why it was fought, and what its impact was on the world. So what was specific to the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars? Well, for one thing, it's more accurate to think of them as a sequence of small conflicts. Whilst the continuity between each conflict was provided by the fact that, apart from the Peace of Amiens between 1802 and 1803, Britain and France were constantly at loggerheads, for much of Europe these conflicts were small, short wars, often over within the course of a single, brief campaign, such was Napoleon's skill at bringing his enemies to battle and securing overwhelming victories over them, which allowed him to dictate peace terms. It was Britain that kept forming and bankrolling coalitions of various different nations, picking out those that had a grievance against Napoleon and adopting the stance of, my enemy's enemy is my friend. For that reason, the wars of the coalition is sometimes bandied around, it's another one that fundamentally works. It's not particularly poetic, but from a utilitarian perspective, it gets across the basic point, a bit like the Seven Years' War, for example. It gives you a basic sense of what the story is, but I think there are other, more effective titles that we can choose from. If you've had a look at my website, you won't be surprised by this next suggestion, the First Global War. Some people turn around and say, ah yes, but the Seven Years' War was fought across multiple continents, and they're quite right, but the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars was on a different scale. There was barely a continent that wasn't touched by this conflict. Europe was obviously engulfed from Lisbon to Moscow, but this conflict was also fought much further afield. 
the West Indies, Canada, the USA during the War of 1812, Egypt and the Near East during Napoleon's Egyptian campaign, South Africa, India and even the Spanish colonies of South America, and of course over thousands of miles of ocean. It was therefore a global conflict on a scale never seen before, in large part because of Britain's fixation with empire and the need to protect the trade routes to its own colonies as well as seizing the colonial assets of other nations. That sense of scale was actually captured by contemporaries, as for many years the period was known as the Great War, until the War of 1914-18 took that title for obvious reasons. In that sense, I suppose we could call the Napoleonic Wars World War 0.7, which isn't quite as facetious as it sounds, because it points to the fact that the two world wars were on an entirely different scale. But if we stay with that World War theme, I think we can probably go one better. In this period, we saw, for the first time, the mass mobilisation of people and society in pursuit of a national war effort in the form of the levée en masse. Men, women, children, the elderly, all were called upon to do their bit, and whilst other nations did not mobilise their societies in quite the same way, the sheer numbers of people involved, either as participants or as victims, lends itself to that concept. Now, I'm not the first person to make this argument. David Bell's book the, on the period is called The First Total War, and if you get the chance to read it, I definitely recommend it. He makes the point that if you want to really understand the notion of why the period has been classified as the First Total War, you need to think about the political and social as well as the military impacts. And that impact on society was immense. For those on the European mainland who were in the path of the armies that fought back and forth across the continent, they were likely to be victims of war on a scale not seen since the Thirty Years' War. Murder and rape were weaponised by the French army in particular, just take the Peninsular War as an example of that, and all nations were guilty of wanton plunder and destruction. The public also engaged with the war on a new level. Newspapers, which were beginning to be read on a larger scale than ever before due to increasing literacy, were crowned with often banal comments to feed the public appetite for news of this war. The British campaign in Flanders in 1794 arguably gave us the first war correspondent in the form of John Bell. In France, Napoleon took the art of war to new heights in a bid to both control the flow of information to people and bolster support for the war. Yet the Napoleonic Wars, as I touched upon earlier, saw a mobilisation of ideals. Initially, at least, this wasn't a clash between different monarchies. This was a clash of ideas and the preservation of the old social order from the threat of a new one. Admittedly, after Napoleon's coup, that changed, and it became a war of competing dynasties. But by that point, conscription and mass mobilisation had begun to harden already budding isms that would dominate the next century, particularly nationalism, militarism and imperialism. Whether viewed in terms of a clash of people, nations, empires or ideals, the Napoleonic Wars really was the first total war. I'm going to end by having a bit of fun with the concept of renaming the conflict, which the Game of Thrones fans amongst you will appreciate. In the TV adaptation, for those of you who aren't familiar, there's a scholar who writes uh, a history of the wars that followed the death of King Robert I, which is given a catcher title, A Song of Ice and Fire. So seeing as we're looking for a more effective and perhaps exciting name, I thought I'd throw a couple of options out there which we can perhaps discuss uh, 
and explore people's alternatives in the forum. There are a couple that I like. The first is The Wars of the Lion, the Bear and the Eagles. And I promise you I'm not just suggesting that um, as a Thrones fan. Because when you look at it, it actually covers a considerable number, though not all, of the nations involved. Britain is commonly represented as a lion, and the imagery was starting to work its way into contemporary caricatures at the time. Russia is there in the form of the black bear, and the eagle obviously factors in Napoleonic France's uh, imperial eagle symbolism, but also draws in many other nations. The double-headed eagle was a symbol of the Austrian royal family, and that continued to be the case until the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the wake of World War I. The Prussian eagle has a long history as the insignia of the Holy Roman Empire, dating back to Emperor Frederick II in 1229. The War of 1812 between Britain and the USA is also covered through the bald eagle, so it's not quite as daft as it might seem on the surface. The Spanish coat of arms, and I'll admit things are getting tenuous here, featured a lion during this period. And if we really want to get unconvincing, we could try and bring the Sphinx in um, as part lion, part man to encompass the Egyptian campaign. The other, and perhaps my favourite poetic one, is the wars of liberty and lust. Because when you pause for a moment and dwell on it, that actually covers the reasons why this conflict was fought in the first place. War initially broke out due to the threat that the ideas of liberty, which had taken hold in France, posed the established political order. Yet that move to defend the ideals of the revolution, on France's part, gave way to lust, conquest for conquest's sake, so that for those nations that were forced to accept incorporation into France, or French dominance over Europe, their own liberty, to some degree, became a motivating factor in joining the respective coalitions against France. For Britain, the lust of empire was clear to see, the imperial possessions of countries occupied by or allied to France were seized under the pretext of keeping them out of French hands. That lust for imperial dominance can also be seen in the refusal to accept the dominance of the Napoleonic Empire over Europe, where it could pose a threat to Britain's overseas empire. So perhaps we've got it all wrong, and if we're going to rename this conflict, we should consider something a bit more left field, like the wars of liberty and lust, or the wars of the lion, the bear, and the eagles. Somehow, though, I doubt that's going to stick. That's it for the first episode. Many thanks to at bookish underscore Rachel, Anna Vakulenko, Mark Cornwall, Rita Payne, at Russ Heritage UK, Jimmy S. Chen, Constanza Frischen, and Bodhi Ashton, who all got involved in the early discussions of this topic on Twitter. And of course, a big shout out to Rob Griffith, who first suggested the topic to me. You can get involved in the conversation about this online, either by tweeting me at ZWhiteHistory or using the hashtag Napoleonicist, or by posting on my forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. Please do let me know your thoughts, comments and arguments against what I'm saying. After all, history is all about these kinds of discussions, and I'm always the first to recognise that there will be many, probably much better ideas than the ones that I've offered. Equally, if you have any questions or requests, get in touch, and I'll do my best to feature them in another podcast. I'll be back soon with something a little different. As I promised in the prequel uh, episode, some podcasts will be more discussion-based pieces like this, others will be more descriptive, and some are going to focus on my own research. 
In two weeks' time, then, I'm going to feature a topic which is very close to what I'm writing about at the moment. That'll be entitled The Curious Case of Badahoff, the Aftermath of British Sieges in the Peninsular War. But before then, I'm going to treat you all to a surprise bonus episode, which now isn't a surprise because I've just told you about it. Before I go, I want to say something about the elephant in the room. This podcast was conceived in a time when we barely knew what coronavirus was. If this podcast helps you to escape for a few minutes, then that's great. I'm not going to dwell on COVID-19 every episode, and I thought long and hard about whether or not to say anything. But I've, I thought it would be a bit weird to just ignore it, and if there's a chance of making just one person feel a bit better about the situation, or saving one life, then this is worth it. If you're scared, know it's okay to be scared. No one with any decency is going to mock you for being anxious about the risks and for taking sensible steps to protect yourself. That's just being human. But for your own sakes, please be careful not to feed that anxiety. The wall-to-wall media coverage is terrifying. We have to accept that the number of cases globally is going to rocket. Things will get worse, but they inevitably will also get better. This is not the zombie apocalypse, despite what the media coverage might be leading us to believe. So if it's getting a bit much... Do something simple to take your mind off things. If you've got a garden, get some fresh air. Limit the amount of news coverage you're watching each day. Or better still, work out what the numbers actually represent as a proportion of the world's population. And then consider the number of people who are surviving this thing. Coronavirus is serious. Everyone needs to be sensible and do what we can to limit its spread. But you don't need to live in abject terror. Because even for those in the at-risk categories, the odds are in all of our favour. And if you're stockpiling toilet rolls, please stop, because pretty soon those of us who aren't stockpiling are going to be wiping ourselves with newspaper. To the small number of people who are blasé about this, I think that the rules don't apply to them. In the nicest possible way, get over yourself. This isn't a game or a war where we will all fight in the streets. You fight this thing by staying off the streets, sitting on your sofa, watching Netflix. You might not be worried. There are plenty of us who aren't actually worried about ourselves. If you get it, the likelihood is you will be fine. You might actually not be, and then you'll be blaming the government for not having enough ventilators to get you out of a situation that you could have avoided. But more importantly, some poor sod can get this thing off of you. You can unknowingly pass this on to someone who passes it on to their nan, who is at risk, and so therefore dies. Now, if you're the sort of person who's okay with that, You probably aren't going to be listening to this podcast anyway, but just in case you are thinking that isolation is a bit tedious and you'll just throw a barbecue on the beach with a couple of mates, stop and think. Nobody wants to give this to someone who dies from it, so listen to the government. They aren't doing this to be really annoying. They're doing it to keep people alive. So keep the people that you care about safe and stay at home. That doesn't mean, though, that you should cut yourself off. The technology is there so that we can all stay in touch, and Lord knows we're going to need each other to stay sane through this. But before thinking about yourself, think about what is for the greater good. And if that doesn't think, if that doesn't convince you, and you want the lockdown to be over that badly, then I have news for you. This is going to continue until the threat to people's health has drastically fallen. If you want to bring that endpoint forward, then stay at home. Because until people stop passing this thing on, the number of cases isn't going to fall. And it's only when the number of cases starts to fall that we're going to come out of lockdown. The last thing I want to say, though, is more positive. 
Like all episodes of adversity in human history, we are going to see the worst of people, but we're also going to see the best of people. This is a time when we all can and must come together to support one another, but not physically in the same room, obviously. Take the time to reach out to people who you've lost contacts with. Text that person who's been self-isolating and might be feeling low. Send a stupid dog gift to friends who have been ill. Because in doing so, you're doing one of the most important things in our society. You're being human. We have always been social animals. We built our civilization on working together and we built an entire global network of ways to stay in touch. So take the time to be kind. And then, when all of this is over, and it will be over, take the time to continue to be kind so that we can all come out of this closer, kinder, and better people than when we started. And when we all come out of lockdown, seriously, we have got to have the mother of all Napoleon-themed parties. That really is it for the first episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and as I say, please join the conversation online. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, stay kind, and thanks for listening. Thank you.